0: We do have a ton to get through in this episode.
1: Common sense is finally prevailing.
0: There was controversy this month, Dave.
1: I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and
0: things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round.
1: Every Doctor who is liked by somebody and that's a really good
0: thing. Davo, my Doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave.
1: I get why fans are asking those questions.
0: Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. doesn't compute it's the elephant in the room that's okay fandom versus the bbc the cardinal sin moving along lunch g'day i'm rob and i'm dave and you're listening to the doctor who show for the month of april 2023 dave how are you
1: i'm not too bad i'm sitting here on a public holiday pleasantly warm i've got to say after a bit of a cold bout Mm -hmm. doing well thank you
0: lovely stuff Folks, tonight, as voted for by you, we'll be looking at the virgin missing adventure novel The Shadow of Wang Chiang which we threw out there to a vote gosh more than a month ago I'd say Dave because we had we needed time to read the thing do you remember that?
1: That's right we needed time for everyone to vote and then time for us to read and then time to make notes so we, we actually needed a, needed a while.
0: <laughs> yes and look 162 of you voted on that. Shadow of Wang Chiang came out on top with 35.2% of the vote. Just pipping your pick Dave Scales of Injustice on 29.6% of the vote and then coming up behind Sands of Time on 259 and Lords of the Storm on 9.3%.
1: Yes, an interesting example of where we haven't coordinated our picks at all. Because out of the four <laughs> picks, we had two David A. McGinty novels and we had two Tom Baker novels, which had we been coordinating, we might not have done.
0: Yeah, completely unplanned, folks. So that's coming up later in the episode. Before then, I do want to mention we've just dropped, well, we've just dropped two things, actually. One, we've dropped a synopsis of Shadow of Wang Chang for people to catch up on the story before they listened to us talking about it but just prior to that dave we also dropped a uh, alternate galaxies episode looking at ultraviolet which is a series i'd never watched from 1998 uh helmed by joe ahearn that's
1: right doctor who's very own joe Ahern. i watched it in 98 and i'm a big fan you hadn't watched it so we both re-watched it or in your case watched it for the first time and mm. we had a bit of a chat about it it was one of those shows that really filled that gap between classic who and new who and um Well, if you want to know what we thought of it, with the episodes out.
0: Yeah, one hour of your time is all we ask.
1: Absolutely. I will also mention that I've been very kindly invited to appear on a couple of other podcasts over the last month. Mm -hmm. The splendid chaps over at Trek This Out invited me on to one of their hot take reviews of Picard, in particular Picard Season 3, Episode 8, Surrender. So you can hear me talking Star Trek over at Trek This Out, or if you're just interested in their views on Picard, do check them out. And I also was invited on a podcast called Pull to Open, who are going through every story of Doctor Who in random order. Mm-hmm. And they asked me to appear on that, and I was very happy to. It was very fun to do. But it wasn't one of those ones where sometimes that people say, oh, we're doing this story, and we'd love you to come in and talk about that, or we're doing this thing, and we think you'd be great for that. They said, can we book you in for this date? And it's completely random, so we'll let you know a week out what story it is. And it was The Doctor's Wife.
0: Oh, how did that go down with you?
1: Look, I was really interested because I hadn't watched it since I watched it on first broadcast. It's been 11, 12 years ago. So it was very interesting for me to go back to that one. And as I noted on the podcast, although I'm not a fan of Series 6, as I think we all know, Mm. a lot of people, yourself included, Rob, have said, look, I get that but go and check out The God Complex and go and check out The Doctor's Wife. They're they're two standouts from the series. Mm -hmm. And uh, I now have.
0: Okay. Well, folks, you'll have to go and listen to it, it sounds like, to find out what Dave thought, myself (laughs) included.
1: (laughs) Yeah, please do it. As always, uh, you know, check out these other podcasts. We're very happy to support them and it's just just really flattering
0: to be invited, really. Absolutely. Should we move on to some news? Yes, and you've got the first piece, Rob. I do, Dave. An interesting one here. We have... Just recently had the drag queen Jinx Monsoon revealed as a new enemy for the Doctor. And I've, I've got to say cards on the table. Initially, I thought Jinx Monsoon was the character name. I'm not really up on my drag queens. And what is interesting is that RTD got out there on the socials, as he does, and teased Jinx Monsoon as, well, who can that be? And Dave, my mind immediately goes to... <laughs> The Rani. I mean, (laughs) fandom has speculated that the Rani has been coming back since 2005. It's almost a running joke. But, you know, if RTD is asking us, who can that be? Then surely it's someone we know Otherwise, how can we answer the question? And he also added, not everyone is getting out of this alive. So it sounds like we might have RTD back in the territory of having, you know, jolly little kitchen sink adventures on one side, yet also killing people off. And hopefully, as I said on Twitter a week or so back, if he's killing people off, please RTD, stick to that style of leaving them dead rather than the Moffat way of death, if I can put it that way.
1: (laughs) Yes, but he is also the one who did the whole, I'm Rose, and this is the story of how I died, and she didn't die at all. Oh, so, gosh, yeah, true. So, who knows? Look, I, I didn't really know much of that. A friend of the podcast, Mark from 42 to Doomsday, did look at her costume and speculate that
0: she's playing the music master from
1: season two of The Goodies.
0: Um, <laughs> there are there are musical notes or, or piano keys, I think, on the costume. It Something certainly like looks like maybe a, both. It
1: certainly looks like it, which I think is where he was coming from. So, look, look, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to speculate. I'm just going to let it all happen when it happens.
0: Mm, very good.
1: Uh, some local news. We mentioned last month that Janet Fielding was coming to Australia. Well, she has now been to Australia. She has, I believe, been to Brisbane and Sydney and Hobart. Mm-hmm. And it looks like the events were very successful. But there's more because Sophie Aldred is coming to Australia next month. Yes. So. That's going to be very exciting. I have booked my flights to go up and attend the Sirens of Audio convention in Sydney on the 13th of May with Sophie Aldrin. It will be a quarter of a century since I last met Sophie Aldrin when I was still at high school.
0: Will you remind her of that, Dave? Will you take a picture in a frame maybe and say, look at this, Sophie?
1: You know what? I don't think I will because I think it's it's a bit unfair to walk up to someone and go, hey, you met me. 26 years ago and she has to sort of be polite oh sure yeah like what's she what's she gonna say like
0: I don't know Dave we drank a bottle of scotch on the the hotel stairs that might jog a memory oh
1: that's true that is true look look if it comes up naturally I'll mention it I've been asked to host one of the uh, interviews not with Sophie but with Kate Orman and John Blum who are also coming along so there'll be lots of good Doctor Who content and I'm looking forward to that
0: fabulous stuff Alright, moving on to my second news piece. Listeners might remember when not that long ago we spotted a new costume for Shooty Gatwa on set and I even made a video about it like, oh my God, he's changed costume already. What's all that about? And Dave, we now have official shots of Shooty and Millie Gibson in full-on Austin Powers-like 1960s gear. How all this fits into the show, I don't know. The most logical thing is they go back to the 60s and... Unlike 99.9% of Doctor Who episodes, they've decided to actually blend in and play dress-ups. But what's interesting when you really think about it is that in these photos, Shooty has sideburns and a semi-Afro hairstyle. So, has he used some sort of Time Lord trick to grow his hair very fast? Have they been living in the 60s long enough for his hair to grow like this? Or is this just a dream sequence, Dave, where you can wear anything you want and have any clothes you want? It just doesn't matter because it's all a dream. Did you see these photos, Dave? Did you like the look for Shooty?
1: I did. I thought it was a very fun look. I also am a bit intrigued about how we get to where we get to. Maybe it's an evil robot replica that isn't quite perfect. Who knows?
0: Yeah, well, Austin Powers had those too.
1: That's true. He did, didn't he? Mm. the plot thickens. (laughs) Uh, continuing on with the new series coming news, we're learning a bit more about what's going on. Not only do we now know that they were doing some shooting that looks like the 60s, but it was announced overnight that Murray Gold will be back in possibly the least surprising piece of news since we found out RTD was taking over. <laughs> Murray Gold is back. We know he's doing at least the specials and season 14. Now, I'll say, Rob, I have mixed thoughts on this because. I think there's no doubt, objectively, Murray Gold is a big deal. He, he made music in Doctor Who a big deal. He's the one that was doing the soundtrack albums. He's the one that was doing the live concerts. He has lots of fans. Is he particularly to my taste? No, he's not. Would I perhaps like RTD to do something a bit different? Yes, I would. But you can't doubt that Murray Gold's very good at what he does.
0: Yeah, I get the feeling that RTD's thought, "Well, I've gone three quarters the way back to the well. I'll just go the whole hog and just just do it all like the old days," and you sort of can't blame him for that. It's it's kind of oh, I don't know, Dave. I I I would have personally liked him to have tried something a little different in you know the music, but it's not to be we are really going back to the future with this
1: yeah look it's also possible when you look at some of the ideas rtd's throwing out some of the casting he's throwing out that maybe he plans to be a little bit outrageous in some of those areas and so wants to give something a bit safer and a bit more familiar with the music and the tone i don't know it's speculation but it's a fact murray gold is back
0: yep murray emote now gold Well, that wraps up the news, Dave. Nice and quick, because we do have a big episode ahead of us. Should we rip into some short topics?
1: Yes, and I'm particularly keen to hear this first one you've got, Rob, because it's been a big conversation on our social media.
0: A big, big, big conversation. I've got a lot to say here, because when it became apparent that Season 9 of Classic Doctor Who was going to launch in the UK, and then it did launch, and we still didn't have pre-orders here for Australian copies of Season 9... I thought, something's clearly up. So, I contacted Universal Sony Pictures Home Entertainment here in Australia. That's quite a mouthful, that name of that company. I usually just call them Universal to to <laughs> save saying that. Who produce the discs locally? And they said, uh, nope, no plans. Nothing on the radar. Zip. So, I made a video about this, which is on the Doctor Who show YouTube. As of us recording this today, it has over 12,000 views, which is just enormous. 12,000 views bring oodles of comments and they're from people, fans, who are understandably upset, annoyed, bewildered, all sorts of emotions about this situation. Some of them even start raving on about completely unrelated topics, which is even weirder and in some cases <laughs> even a bit disturbing. But yeah. hey, it's, it's YouTube, I guess. So I'll, I'll pause there before I continue. You've, you've seen all this happening and seen the, the growth on this video.
1: Yeah, it's been a really interesting conversation, and one that's, I think, engaged a lot of fans here in Australia, for very obvious reasons. We want to be able to buy the Blu-ray box set collections. And just to give a bit of extra context here for our listeners overseas, things became a bit more complicated in Australia because, look, going back decades, right back to the VHS release, we were used to our releases coming out a few months later and with maybe slightly different packaging. That was just part of being an Australian fan. And again, going back to at least the 90s, it was not uncommon for fans um, to perhaps go and purchase tapes or DVDs and now Blu-rays from the UK instead because you got them quicker and they were usually a slightly better package or a better VHS quality. A big problem is that a few years ago, the Australian government decided to crack down on GST, which is similar to VAT or sales tax slightly different, but similar enough for the conversation, in in the UK or the US, and said that if companies are going to import to Australia products that you could otherwise buy in Australia, then to ensure there isn't a competitive advantage, the overseas company would have to pay the government the GST. Now, Amazon said, well, Australia is going to be outraged by this, and we're not going to do this, and we're going to stop sending stuff to Australia until the government gives in. (laughs) And I remember a government minister coming out and saying, if you think people are going to side with the great big multinational company that doesn't want to pay a fair share of tax, you might be surprised, Amazon, at how that goes for you. (laughs) And it sure enough didn't go very well. But but that did mean for a long time we couldn't import from most of the big uh, retailers in the UK. Um, We had to go through a couple of smaller companies and I've got to say, my experience with a couple of those companies has been very ordinary. I know other people have had very ordinary experiences, and and I'd frankly given up on trying to get them from overseas and thought, you know, to hell with it, I'll just wait a few months and get them from Australia. And then suddenly we can't get them from Australia. However, I have discovered that as of February this year, Amazon will post stuff that is in their own shop to Australia they won't post stuff that's in other shops attached to Amazon but I did as soon as you heard the news go out buy one from Amazon and it has arrived in Australia
0: so the good news is in that sense we can buy from overseas vendors whether it's Amazon like you did or whether it's some of the smaller vendors if people want to take a punt on their package being damaged or their pre-order being mysteriously cancelled at the last minute etc etc But what I do want to talk about, too, because I've promised people in the comments section of the the video that we would do this on the show, there are really three possibilities that are going on with this whole Season 9 not coming out in Australia. And the three most likely to me, Dave, I'll run through them all and then you can comment on whichever ones take your fancy. The first is that the Blu-ray sets simply haven't sold well. You can still pick up past sets from ages ago here on store shelves right now. So, hey, if there's any of you in the UK who missed out on, like, you know, Colin or Sylvester, we've got loads of them. Come down here or buy from here. More seriously, maybe Universal is like, you know what? Physical media is dying in general. This stuff ain't selling. And the cost of living is only getting worse for people. Let's just knock these on the head. And boom, perhaps it's all over for Doctor Who on physical media in Australia. And we just don't know it yet. That's possibility number one. That was the crux of the video. The second possibility is perhaps Disney has something to do with this, either putting the brakes on physical media outside of the UK. Obviously, in the UK, Doctor Who remains very much a BBC thing and they can do what they want. And as much as Universal might want to release it, maybe their hands are tied. Another plot twist could be with Disney coming in, the physical media might be going to continue, but it might need to be made and distributed by someone other than Universal, In which case, we're in a change of distribution scenario and no one's simply saying that publicly yet. And finally, the third option is that the Season 9 set will be released in Australia one day. It's just very, 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 very late. I mean, our local sets always lagged the UK. Yes, you've mentioned that a moment ago. But it's unprecedented that the UK release is out It's out now. It has been out for some time. And we still don't have pre-orders up yet. That's bizarre. And for it not to even be in their pipeline, which is the words they used to me in their email response, that would suggest it's months off at least, if it's coming at all. They're my three options, Dave. What do you think?
1: Yeah, look, they're all very strong options. I obviously have no insight as to whether Disney's doing anything in the background. I think that's a credible theory. I have no idea If it's true, I think that one of the unfortunate aspects is that if it is a case of number three, they're going to release it just very, very delayed. That delay is going to mean it's going to sell even less well because even more Australian fans will have given up and gone and bought their copies from the UK in the meantime. Yes. You're right that there has been a a lot of leftover copies, particularly season 24. That really doesn't seem to have sold very well at all. And I know a lot of Australian fans who just wait several months until they can get the box sets at half price because they know they are going to be reduced and they know there are going to be copies. And this isn't a new thing. I remember when the DVD range was first starting out here a long time ago and somebody discovered that sort of after three or four weeks, Vengeance on Varus, the very first release of that, had sold a total of 120 copies in Australia. Wow. At which point the people around the table said, well, we account for about 5% of those sales. And if we go through our address books of people we know have bought it, we can personally account for about a quarter of those sales in Australia. So, you know, it really was a case of just very active fans buying it. Of course, that was the very start of the DVD range and DVD players were still coming out and it was probably the low point of enthusiasm for the show anywhere at the time. But, you know, physical media hasn't always been that big a deal here in Australia. So I do worry that they have pulled the pin. And my bigger worry there is that, there are going to be a lot of Australian fans who are going to have to buy it from the UK. We already know that UK copies sell out often sometimes before it even hits the shelves. Mm. And if there's another 50, 100, 200 Australian fans wanting to buy these copies, does that mean there won't be enough to go around?
0: I reckon it could be even more than that. It honestly. could be, I don't know, yeah. I was surprised that there were still season nine copies around. At one of the uh, the smaller... Retailers who'll sell into Australia, there wasn't. But at others, there were. And and I I was surprised by that. I thought, oh, gosh. I mean, this is a a classic Pertwee season. You know, I thought it would have been sold out.
1: So maybe they have decided in the UK to print a few more copies. I don't know. Uh, We'll just have to see how this plays out.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: A quick short topic from me, Rob, and this is a bit more esoteric. Mm -hmm. I had a question a couple of weeks ago and I put it out onto Twitter and got some possible answers. And... That question is, what's the first time the Doctor can accurately pilot the TARDIS without a plot excuse?
0: Gosh, that's a really great question.
1: So going through, I think a lot of people correctly identified the first time he ever accurately pilots the TARDIS is at the end of... The Daleks' Master Plan Episode 10, where he has to chase the Daleks back to Kemble, But again, there's a whole big plot twist in that. He's got to get the monk's directional unit from his TARDIS, and it's a different model, so it might not work cliffhanger. And then you go through and there are other occasions in the Pertwee years where the Time Lords turn out to have been controlling the TARDIS or the Master's helping him fly the TARDIS or he's tracking the Master's TARDIS. And there's always this plot reason that they had to read in, write in, you know, cover it with a line, as we always say, Rob, mm-hmm. so they can explain why the Doctor can do this. A couple of people threw up the trips to Metabenus 3 in either the Green Death or or Planet of the Spiders, but then others pointed out, well, he does say he's had to do something about wiring it into the programmer to be able to get there. But I think, thanks to our friends on Twitter, the correct answer is Planet of the Daleks Part 6, where Joe says, I want to go back to Earth. And he says, okay, let's go back to Earth. that seems to be the first time ever the Doctor accurately pilots the TARDIS without a plot. Device, And even if you go through the next few few seasons, it's still very, very rare that it happens. Obviously, at season 16 where he's got the tracer. Season 17, you've got the randomizer, so it doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. But but for 15, 16 years of the show, it's actually incredibly unusual that the Doctor can just pilot the TARDIS. I think a lot of fans have sort of bought into the theory that when he gets his knowledge of time travel back in The Three Doctors, that has helped him learn how to pilot the TARDIS or maybe the mm. work he did while he was um, stranded on Earth has helped to fix the TARDIS a bit more. So he seems to do it more after that. But then as you get into the J&T years, I think in the McCoy era, it's more common than not that he has chosen to go where he wants to go. You know, I want to go to Terra Alpha. I want to go to Gabriel Chase. I want mm-hmm. to take Ace back to Perivale. And then by the new season, he can just go wherever he wants. So... Exactly. I just thought it was a really interesting thing that kind of highlighted how that aspect of the show has really changed. And thank you to all our listeners on Twitter who did engage and threw out some really cool and clever answers.
0: Yeah, if I was thrown that question, I legitimately would have said, oh, probably somewhere in the Pertwee era, but I wouldn't have been thinking of a specific episode. It just would have felt right to me that by then it happened. But yeah, still a very rare occurrence, even in the Pertwee era. Yeah, absolutely hmm a comment on doomsday which we have spoken about on the previous show i commented the other day on twitter dave gosh didn't that promotion of doomsday go silent after the atrocious promo video because it really did that video came out it was meant to be this big new series books comics you know whatever um everyone panned it and it just went silent and so i made a comment on that silence And right up until making this episode, that was still the case. Although, in late May we've just had the cover of a Doomsday-related comic emerge. Although, quite tellingly, the blurb was all about, Missy is back! (laughs) So, apparently the story features Missy. And it really seemed to downplay Doom, who was ostensibly the main character of the thing. So, I found that really, really interesting and... Dave, just as a reminder of how the Doomsday Trailer video was taken online. I know we spoke about it. I jumped on and had a look at the top 10 comments currently sitting on YouTube under that video. Can I read them to you?
1: I think you're going to.
0: <laughs> Here we go. Number one, and you can chime in any time, by the way, Dave. Number one, sometimes it's hard being a Doctor Who fan.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Number two... This feels like something you'd get in a Doctor Who escape room or interactive exhibit. Yes. Number three. I want to go back to the days where Love and Monsters and Fear Her were deemed as the worst of Doctor Who. Holy crap, how far we've fallen. Well, it's a bit harsh. Number four. This is truly one of the Doctor Who stories ever created.
1: Well, yes, it is.
0: (laughs) That's their point, I think. Number five. This makes Doctor in Distress look like a masterpiece. Number six. This is what people who don't watch Doctor Who think Doctor Who is like.
1: Mm.
0: I quite like that one, actually. Number seven. That feeling when you want death not only to win, but to keep on going. (laughs) That's quite clever. (laughs) Number eight. I feel so sorry for the actress. Imagine being so excited about being in Doctor Who. Telling all your friends and your mum to watch. And then this drops. Just, what is it? No. (laughs) Yeah,
1: look, I must admit, I do kind of sometimes wonder what it must be like for for an an actress to go and do something like that and then just read the comments and just be told how terrible an actress you were. That can't be fun.
0: Mm. Number nine. You know, BBC, if you want us to stop watching Doctor Who... You can tell us directly. We won't get offended. Mm. And number 10, I watched this alone wearing headphones and still felt a wave of embarrassment.
1: They're not positive, are they?
0: No, and that is literally just the first 10 comments. I didn't go cherry-picking like, oh, I'm going to find the funniest or the worst or whatever. That is literally the first 10. It got panned.
1: Yeah, look, you've got to factor in that it is YouTube and it is social media, so there are... People and I think a couple of those you can really tell people are deliberately trying to sh- look how mean and nasty and clever I can be. Ha! <laughs> look at me mm-hmm. stab the knife and I'm so brave. Like, there's a bit of that, but but yeah, ten out of ten is not that just that.
0: No, no, it's not.
1: <laughs> well, look, we'll see where it keeps going. Um, and to round out my short topics, I'm just going to diverge a little bit from Doctor Who here, as I sometimes do as I sometimes like to look at the televisual landscape and see how it reflects or might compare to what's happening in Doctor Who. And during the last month, I got to watch on Twitter with quite a bit of amusement a fight between dedicated fans of Harry Potter and dedicated fans of Percy Jackson.
0: Oh, interesting. It
1: was really reassuring to know that It's not just Doctor Who fans on Twitter who are crazy. There are plenty of other fandoms out there that are just as nuts. Yep. Um, But look, this is obviously in regard to the announcement that they are going to reboot the Harry Potter books. As a television series, the rumor is it's going to be a seven-season show that's going to run, obviously, one year per book, similar to what the movies did. Um, my only surprise in that is that it's taken this long for them to go back to the well on Harry Potter. You know, there was a generation that grew up on the movies, and now there's going to be a generation that'll grow up on the TV shows. But Harry Potter is obviously following the example of Percy Jackson, who got two movies uh, starring Logan Lerman, but then the film's run was, was axed, but they are doing the same thing. They're going back and doing a television series one season per book. And I just thought that was a really interesting look at how things are changing. When Harry Potter first came out, those first movies, it would not have been thought of that a television series could cope with that story could do justice to that story or would get the viewers to that Mm. story compared to a movie Um, obviously the same thing was thought about with Percy Jackson another young adult fantasy series whereas now clearly the way to get best bang for buck and to best deliver is seen to be TV series Star Wars has been doing more series than they've been doing movies although they have announced now that the uh, Mandalorian Ahsoka sort of group of shows is going to end with a movie, but, but you know, all these Star Wars movies that they keep saying, oh, they're going to make a movie and they're going to make a movie. None of them are happening, Mm. but the TV Mm. series are. So I just think it's a really interesting landscape in which Doctor Who is well placed, but also when we debate the move of Doctor Who to Disney and Disney Money and Disney Plus, if it's going to compete with these other TV shows... It's kind of where it's going to have to be Because it's not got the TV landscape to itself anymore
0: No, no, not at all Uh, Look, technology has just come on in leaps and bounds And not just in live action I've just started watching The Bad Batch The uh, Star Wars series, which is animation And the animation in that is out of sight Compared to, say, the Clone Wars animation uh, Or whatever It looks similar But lighting and shading And even the way they can move the camera, which is virtual because it's animated, but the the way you sense the camera moving, amazing. So, yeah, TV is where it's at, Dave, and you're quite right. Doctor Who's really going to have to be on its game when uh, RTD's era begins. Uh, It really does. Yeah,
1: and that's before we start talking Stranger Things and all these other established shows.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Should we talk about The Shadow of Wen Chiang?
0: I think we should, Dave. It's that time, and again, we mentioned at the start of the show, earlier this week, we released a uh, a synopsis of the novel. So if you've not heard that, and you do want to know what the novel's all about, go and listen to that episode. Otherwise, let's begin, Dave, with, I want to read something from the start of the book. Okay. Which is the first paragraph of what David A. McKinty calls bump. Which is like his introduction to the book, before the prologue even.
1: I will open my copy and read along with
0: you. Okay. He says, They say the best sequels are those that take different paths from their predecessors. Aliens is a good sequel, while Friday the 13th Part Whatever isn't. Those of you hoping for the further adventures of Jago and Lightfoot in Victorian London, therefore, are in for a disappointment. This is, with any luck, a separate entity. I'll close the book on that. Isn't it funny that they did actually do a Jay Go and Lifewood series, a big finish? <laughs> but in this case, The Shadow of Wang Chiang, Dave, David A. McKinty took it in a whole different direction.
1: It's so true. And that really takes me to my very first memory of the book, because I was obviously active in fandom at the time that the Virgin books were coming out. I was reading most of the new adventures and most of the missing adventures when I could. And I can remember The Shadow of Wang Chiang being released. And first of all, it was just a title and an author on a list of coming releases. And we all said, "Wang Chiang, is this a sequel to Talon's? Wow, what's going on here? Then we got the cover, And it's got Mr. Sin on it, the Peking homunculus. And we discover that it's set in Season 16. And not just the beginning or the end of Season 16, it's actively set between the Stones of Blood and the androids of Tara. Mm. So how does that work? There isn't an extra segment of The Key to Time, and those adventures were all pretty contiguous. So before it was even released, it really was one of those ones that as fans... We noticed and said, how is this going to work?
0: Look, it seems like you're talking about your early memories of the release, so I'll I'll counter with mine, Dave. This book comes from that period, along with the NAs in general, where I wasn't engaged with Doctor Who at all. Now, admittedly, this one came out around mid-1996, so I guess I'm in the process of coming back via the TV movie. hmm And in a short period of time, I'll be engaging with the EDAs and the PDAs. But this is an example of many in the NAs and MAs that I didn't notice at the time as far as I can recall. I mean, hey, I might have seen it in a bookshop and thought, oh, wow, it's a Wang Chiang-related book, cool. But I have no actual memory of that happening. I'd be making it up if I said that happened, although it very well could have happened. I don't know. And (laughs) in the years since... It's a book I hadn't actually read until now, so I thank the listeners for selecting it.
1: Yes, look, I did read it at the time. I must admit my memories were very hazy about it. It it was at that time where the telly movie was coming out and everything was getting very exciting and very hectic. I will say as just a bit of background, it is by David A. McGinty, who is one of the doyens of the Virgin Range, and in fact of Doctor Who books Generally, his first new adventure was White Darkness. That was okay. First Frontier, though, one of my top ten new adventures. Sanctuary, friend of the podcast Richard, rates that as one of his all-time favourite new adventures. So, oh, really? Bit of a reputation there. Uh, Lords of the Storm, a Devo book that didn't win this poll, but it is quite well done. And The Dark Path, which has the first encounter between the Trout and Doctor and the man who will become the Master... Is quite well known as one of the standouts of The Missing Adventure range, and That came after The Shadow of Weng Chiang, as did his past Dr. BBC book, The Face of the Enemy, which I've often put in the top 10 of my Doctor Who fiction books, full stop. So he had a very strong reputation as being a, a good writer, but maybe not one of the big fan favorites, but as a very solid writer who kept getting work.
0: He's got a particular flavour, I can tell from this, that might not go down well with all Doctor Who fans.
1: That's very true. He's very big on his research. He's very big on putting together worlds. Sanctuary is, I believe, the only pure historical that the New Adventures did, so there's not even a small alien artefact or something to mix in with the plot. And he's just the Doctor trapped in, I think it's France... Mm-hmm. Um, at a particular time. So, yeah, very, very big on his historical stuff. White Darkness, his first book, as I said, that's set in 1950s Haiti from memory. Right. And again, there was there was lots of... This is my research about Haitian voodooism and Haitian religion and Haitian colonialisation and all of that sort of thing. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, and he's not a very fluffy writer. I'm, I'm picking that up too.
1: <laughs> it sounds like we're moving into our opinions here, Rob. So why don't you keep going and give us your big overarching view
0: spoiler free okay go on dave i i think i'm safe in saying this isn't fluffy this is a very gun novel rather than a very frock novel can i start by saying that uh yes i think that's (laughs) fair we've got a wonderfully real gritty sort of representation of china in the 1930s under japanese oppression we've got tongs we've got opium dens we've got fancy nightclubs think of the start folks of indiana jones and the temple of doom That's what this is across much of the book. In fact, I can't help but think that given many of the things that happen in the novel, including Romana as a nightclub singer, don't panic, folks, that's not a spoiler. (laughs) McGinty is absolutely a fan of that film and is riffing hard on it in places. And that's fine for me. I adore the Indiana Jones franchise. I'll stop there for the moment.
1: I certainly think this was a very good book. Is it jumping into my list of sort of the top three or four missing adventures? Probably not. But did I find it very easy to read? Did I want to go back each night? I want to go back and read more of this book. I want to find out what's happening. Absolutely, I did. Are there some fairly big problems with the book? Yes, there are. and I'll talk about those. Are there some pluses? Absolutely, there are. And the big key point that I'll make, I sort of now transition maybe from uh, spoiler-free opinion into slightly spoilery, Uh, further extrapolation is just to talk very briefly about the missing adventures themselves and how this feels in that range Mm -hmm. now Rob when we did our special some years ago now on the virgin new adventures we did a 20 minute sidestep into the missing adventures because they they deserve to be talked about as well they were a big deal at the time and I made the point then and I, I stand by this point that the missing adventure writers had it a lot harder than the new adventures writers the new adventures writers just had to do two things write a good book and write a book that was in tune with new modern 90s-style Doctor Who. Mm. The Missing Adventures had it much harder because they also had to write a good book. They also had to be in tune with this new 90s-style book form virgin, bigger-than-the-show-used-to-be style of writing. And they had to capture the tone and the vibe and the ethos of the era in which they're set. So Mm. a good book that feels like a 90s new adventure but is set in season 16 is not always the easiest thing to pull off, and some of them don't pull it off at all well. I think this does a pretty good job, not a perfect job, but a pretty good job of feeling like a season 16 story whilst being a story that is too broad and too deep for the television screen. Mm,
0: mm, That last point is very important, which I'll be examining myself. Before we bring the spoiler curtain down, I'll just say again, if this has wet your appetite, but you're thinking, oh gosh, maybe I really don't remember this book, or you've never read it, etc., go and listen to our podcast episode from earlier in the week. Get up to date with it. It's almost a blow-by-blow synopsis of what goes on. Take about, what, 15 minutes of their time, Dave? Yeah, about that. Yeah. And then come back and listen to what's about to go on here. Let's bring that curtain down.
1: Or <laughs> well, you can just dive headlong into it right now
0: ouch it's a very heavy curtain
1: (laughs) i think the point you were going to make robin i think i've got it down as my next point as well let's see if i'm right is to talk about the setting of the book
0: okay great
1: because i think that one of the strengths of this book is that it does have that very big well-realized setting it has multiple locations it has big extras if you if you were actually filming it it has big explosions uh, lots of characters and it does all that sort of thing but it it's not something that they could have made on a 1977, 78 budget. You know, had they tried to do the docks of Shanghai, let's face it, it would have been the banks of the Thames. Um, <laughs> and, in you know, Japan would have been a quarry. Let's, let's not mince yeah. words. I found the setting really, really well done. Now, I don't know as much about 1930s Asia as I do about European history or American history or or the like. But look, I've been to Taiwan, so I know a bit of the history of the Republic of China in the 1930s. My favourite movie ever is The Empire of the Sun, so I know a little bit about the Japanese and what was going on in um, Shanghai. Uh, a decade later, because that movie is obviously set in part in Shanghai, I've seen The Last Emperor, so I know a bit more about Chinese politics in the 30s and what was going on with the puppet emperor of Manchuria and, mm-hmm. and all that. So, so I had some touchstones and some reference points in which I could enjoy this book. But even if I hadn't, I thought McGinty does a pretty good job of putting us into a really well-researched, really detailed world that the book does justice to that the TV show wouldn't have done justice to. Have I correctly stolen your point there, Rob?
0: <laughs> well, look, I, I've jotted down that the novel oozes attention to detail. Yeah. And I don't know whether that's because McGinty is a, a particular devotee of this period specifically, or he's just a history buff in general who likes to get his hands dirty with lots of research. This is more than just watching the intro to Temple of Doom a hundred times and basing a novel there. I was being a little facetious earlier. You know, he's done some legwork to make this feel like a living, breathing sort of place. But I will comment that sometimes this desire to paint this bigger picture of the landscape and, and tell you what's happening here and what's what and, you know, all of this stuff, it seems to overtake what's happening with the Doctor. It feels like the Doctor's almost a bit player in this bigger picture for a a lot of the novel, probably until about the last third, I'd say. And maybe that's actually realistic. He's just this guy who's shown up in a world that's doing its own thing and will be doing its own thing whether the Doctor's there or not. But I think when we're Doctor Who fans, we're reading this to see what our hero is doing and almost at times it felt like the Doctor and Romana were pushed aside a bit or just being locked up while... Other stuff happened.
1: Yeah, I think that is correct. The research is really interesting. The research does add to the depth of the book. So overall I praise it. But there are times where we get so into the weeds of some of these characters and so into the background of some of these characters that I did find myself struggling to keep up at times. And that doves into another point I had, which is very similar and related in that there are a number of characters in this book who are all introduced very quickly in the first few chapters Mm. and i did find myself having to pause a couple of times and go okay just, just let me get my head around this right there's lee lee's the policeman right okay and there's young chi but he's actually woo and he's the vigilante who's actually a nightclub owner and then oh, later on he's no, he's actually japanese as well um and then there's quok and quok works for Sen-Ku. and I, I i was having to sort of pause and go right before i go into the next chapter can i just double-check in my mind who all these characters are.
0: Oh, and there was a guy called Jung, which I don't think even made it into our synopsis of the book, otherwise it would get too convoluted. There was the German Vogler. It was like names, 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 names. It was hard to keep a track of at times. It, it,
1: it was. And look, I, I don't know whether part of it is because we're very used to Western names in our literature, and so having very Chinese names meant we couldn't quite take it all in as much. I don't know if that's a thing. Um, I hope it's not, but it could be. But but yeah, there were a lot of characters who were all introduced very quickly. And it really wasn't until I was well into the novel, I was comfortable with being able to identify who they all were and what they were all doing. At which point, two of them have twists to their backstories where we find out that they're not what we think in fact in the case of Wu's character he goes from being a vigilante to a nightclub owner to a Japanese agent and back to a nightclub owner and it is like okay just calm down
0: yeah yeah I mean Wu who I think might be a hat tip to the filmmaker John Wu who has made a lot of Hong Kong action films. I, I just... I, was, I kept thinking that the whole way through the book. It's funny you say
1: that because my reference was Harry Who from the Get Smart series.
0: Oh, is that right? Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, look, I, I don't know. And yes, he has this alter ego, Yan Che, which is akin to characters you'd see at the time in film serials. There are even references to that, that he's like these characters that are, that are happening in the American film serials. And in a modern sense, he's kind of like Batman, you know he's this vigilante who he explicitly says he's made it his mission to protect the ordinary people of the city he lives in he gets around covertly in the shadows like batman and does all that stuff that's me putting a western spin on on this yeah i found that quite fascinating actually
1: Oh, I liked it all. And it was genuinely interesting. And, and as I said, I, I got to sort of draw on my knowledge and my experience of Republic of China politics and history. Mm. And, and so that was really fascinating. But it did require an extra layer of effort in reading a book that I was enjoying. But there were times when, as I say it, it felt a little bit harder than it perhaps could have been if he'd introduced these characters over a slightly longer period.
0: Yeah, you got to work at this one now. Wu's opposite, of course, quite literally is Li. Li is Chinese, but he's working with the Japanese, whereas Wu is Japanese, but protecting... His people who are Chinese from what's going on but he's
1: also working for the police we working for the tongs
0: indeed <laughs> so so all of that is very interesting and, and Lee is quite cool in his own right coming across as this very straight-laced police detective doing everything by the book mm. and he actually spends a lot of time with the doctor you know once he stops trying to lock the doctor up they sort of do a lot of the adventure together but in the end he and Wu have to sort of face off and he, He gets blown away. So this character who we've sort of been sympathetic to and has been likeable gets shot at the end of the book. He's probably got the most
1: interesting character arc of any of the characters in the book. Certainly in my opinion he has because he does do that classic Doctor Who character thing of he starts as a very straight-laced, there's a rational explanation for everything police detective and then he meets the Doctor and he has to start learning that maybe the world's a bit more complicated and a bit less perfect than he expected it was and he's got to learn all about that and and, and as you say you start to sort of like him and he's almost he's almost like the Lightfoot in some ways of this this book to the doctor Mm, mm. then you start to learn a bit more about who he is and his work with the Japanese and how ruthless he is and and you do start to go actually he's not that nice a person after all he's actually quite selfish he's he's, he's quite wicked Mm -hmm. and then he gets his comeuppance and and look I did feel that by the time Lee and Wu had their final confrontation. I was on Wu's side. Um, and oh I, yes, yes, yes. So, so it worked. But yes, it is it is a very good character arc. But it is a character arc that's kind of like the fifth layer of plot in this. So, so <laughs> you know, it's, it's like you know you're, you're down to the fifth layer and you're still working quite hard on keeping track of this character's arc and motivation. So that, that that makes for a good book. And and I suspect if I read this again in five years' time. I would appreciate that, you know, there were all these extra layers that kept me interested, but it it does make it a little bit harder at the time. Uh, Rob, can I pull out to some main characters, perhaps? Yes. I'm going to give you three quick takes, and you pick up on or disagree with what you think. Mm-hmm. I said at the start the job of the missing adventure is to capture the era as best it can. I thought that the Doctor Wars perfectly captured for season 16 here. McGinty really gives us that Doctor who, one moment he's being very silly and he's making jokes and he's sort of throwing on his out there and then he's telling us that this is a very, very serious thing indeed. And I thought he captured mm. that part of the Tom Baker Doctor really well. Romana, I thought, was fine, but she didn't feel really characterised beyond being haughty. She's just haughty a lot, and she's detached a lot, um, yeah. which maybe reflects on Mary Tam's portrayal, I don't know.
0: Oh, cruel.
1: Uh, so disagree with me if you want. And look, canine, I thought, was used well. He wasn't used as a get-me-out-of-jail too often, a couple of times he was, I liked that K-9 was able to do things that he would have done in the show had they had the money to do it for example, canine going upstairs. It's not a magic thing. He's not suddenly able to float or anything like that. He's got a mechanism that sort of lifts his front paws up over one step and then drags his way up and it's, and it's slow and it's cumbersome. And look, I'm sure if they could have afforded to do that in 1978, they would have. So it didn't feel like a cheat. It felt like expanding the character. So Doctor really good, Romana, canine eh, canine not bad. How do you feel about those three?
0: Yeah, do- the doctor was spot on. So many of the quips you could actually hear Tom say. Yes. Without doubt. Romana, when I was saying cruel about Mary Tam's performance, uh, th- that was because I-, I like Mary Tam very much.
1: Look, I-, I-, I know she has got fans, and I like her performance as well, but I do think when you try to write her in a book, there's not a lot of character to grapple onto.
0: There's not, but I, I did enjoy where Woo's going to get her to sing at the nightclub. And I'm thinking this would be so much out of her comfort zone. This would actually be really fun to watch if this was on TV. Yeah, true, true. You know, so I quite enjoyed that. And K-Night, yeah, he, you say he's not like a, a deus ex machina, you know. Too much. <laughs> Literally, because <laughs> he is a machine. But... um. Yeah, he, he does show up at some good moments, uh, but in plausible ways, like you say, climbing those stairs. And I did enjoy when Mr. Sin's head comes rolling down the stairs and K-9 can hear it from a distance like, ah oh, ah oh, ah, oh, as he's coming down the stairs. <laughs> and then he lands near K-9 and K-9 just obliterates him because, you know, he's out to get his master, so he's going to zap him.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, there were a couple of times where I thought the whole the doctor and romana are in danger what's going to happen oh a red beam came and stunned those i just thought that happened once or twice a bit too often but look that did happen all in the tv series as well so you know
0: what got me the most is i think at least two or three times in the book the doctor's like oh i'll call k9 or romana sends k9 to the doctor and k9 apparently is just trundling through 1930s shanghai <laughs> yeah and no one cares <laughs> you know? yeah yeah
1: yeah, that crossed my mind as well. And look, I, I did also like that bit at the end. And I thought that the writer went into such trouble to make it very clear that K-9 was going up some stairs and it was going to take a while and that K-9 was on these stairs. And Did we mention K-9's on these stairs, by the way? And I thought there's got to be a payoff. I didn't expect the payoff was going to be that Mr. Sin's head bounces down the stairs and stops and gets obliterated. Yes, that was, that was very well done.
0: Well, let, let's talk briefly about Mr. Sin before we get to a, a character like Senko, perhaps. The
1: Peking Homunculus.
0: Yes, he, he comes across as so psychotic here. I really liked the way the writing would describe how the automaton actually works, how he sees the world, literally he can use different ways to sense what's going on he's got different sort of visions that he can use he can see people's heat signatures and things like that but then there's also that pig side of his mind that when he gets zapped with the uh the electricity he goes a bit crazy and when he does go crazy wow i mean how many people does he kill in this book like it's two or three dozen i think yes
1: and and you properly feel he's just reveling in the blood and the guts mm-hmm it's really well done
0: yeah yeah he comes across as just he's like the terminator he's like unstoppable especially with the um the dragon paths where he can just drop into a dragon path and zip around like how he zips into their plane you know they're in midair and suddenly mr sin's in the plane in this little enclosed space like oh my god how scary would that be
1: yes and then when they throw him out of the plane he just goes through another dragon path and escapes yeah yeah, look, I really like the use of Mr. Sin once he came into the book. I will call out, though, the book is called The Shadow of Wenchang. Mm-hmm. The book has Mr. Sin on the cover, and there is an artifact stolen from the Palace Theatre in the very first chapter of the book. It's pretty obvious that Mr. Sin is going to be in this book, and it's pretty obvious that the childlike person who is walking around with Senko is going to be Mr. Sin. Right. So... I did feel that after the first couple of chapters I was like come on David we all know Mr. sins in the book we all know what he looks like let's let's just stop you know dangling this around
0: yeah it's it's almost like he's writing the story like it's on tv in his head and he's and they're hiding the fact and on tv that might be effective but as you say when it's a book with that name and he's on the damn cover it <laughs> yeah. just doesn't work yeah It'd be like having the novel of Earthshock with Cybermen on the front or something and and still trying to really secretly, you know, keep them out of the book or something. Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, look, look. a minor point because he was very well used. Uh, can I talk about my biggest problem with the book, please, Rob? Go for it. I'm not quite sure what the point of the book was. Now, don't get me wrong. I was very curious to find out what was going on. I was very excited by the ending. There was a big build-up, and it ended with a big explosion, and the right people got killed, and the right people survived, and, and all of that. So look, as an adventure, it works. But every so often, I'll just stop and go, what does Senko actually want? And why is she actually doing this? And what is the Tong going to get out of this? And it's kind of sort of answer that she wants her revenge on Greel, and she sort of wants to increase the powers of the dragon paths, but I just felt it was all a bit sort of nothing-ish. And particularly given that, and look, big spoiler, is coming now, given that Magnus Greal doesn't turn up at the end of the book, mm. which I thought might have been sort of the big denouement. You know, the last few chapters are, and Magnus Greel is back, and now we discover what the real plan was, or now they've got to team up together to stop it. I, that didn't happen, and I, I think that's the right choice. But i did feel the stakes and the motivations for the plot never really felt quite right or like they worked or like they were put together
0: okay i mean to to piece it together she she wants to get grill to torture him for all eternity because of what he did to her father to do that she needs the nuclear reactor to zap the dragon paths, to knock him off course have him land so that she can get him To make the reactor, she needs the tong to steal all the parts and move them into the mountain. So that's why she's promised the tong, if you do this, your god will come back. That's that's kind of why I think she's got the tong on one side building this reactor for her or stealing the parts at least for it. And then what she wants to do once he arrives. So I, I took that okay. I thought Senko, I mean, she's the closest thing we have in the book to a villain interestingly she's not villainous or at least super villainous you know at least in the sense that we think of villains i mean she wants to get magnus grill and torture him as we're saying yes but that's based on what he did to her father so this is a family revenge not just oh i'm i'm evil i'm evil me and of course she has no interest in killing the doctor and when she has romana in her mountain lair she lets her roam at will because she's so sure of the purity of her mission so i think she's very interesting in that regard and is that why you're wondering what the point is because she's not this typical villain with a typical straightforward desire is is that it maybe
1: yeah i think that might be because i did like her character i thought she was interesting i thought she was a bit different she she did feel like a villain that could be in season 16 which had a couple of really cool female villains and had a couple of very different types of Villains, I'm thinking of something for somebody like Count Grendel of Grach, who's, you know, not a particularly evil person, he's just a selfish person, so to speak. So it, it works, but I don't think I ever quite felt that there was a big plot reason why she was the baddie we had to stop her. It was it worked, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't bad. I just I just felt like the plot didn't really have the gravity that it could have it had the adventure it needed to so fine great but did i feel it was all a little bit lightweight maybe yes i think i did
0: okay well what about the plot insofar as being a sequel to talons dave i mean i think it's clever insofar as what the audience would would assume is that we'd go back to london and maybe start in that old theater and maybe mr sin gets reanimated so some of the aspects would actually be the same but in this novel, we zoom away from London straight away and we're in China with all this stuff going on. I thought it was clever. What do you think about that in terms of being a sequel?
1: Yeah, I think it was really, really good. I think that it it sort of reminded me a bit of um, Kinder and Snake Dance, where they're sequels to each other, but they're very, very differently done. I think it's that sort of a sequel. and And, and it worked really well. The setting was good. It had enough little references to keep fans going on so there's one bit where Senko is reading somebody's diaries and at that stage we don't know whose diaries they are and she she talks about how he met somebody called the doctor with her that with hair that curls like the ram and you go oh I know where that line came from yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) so yeah and look I I think that I knew that Senko was going to be Li Sen Chang's daughter before it was revealed based on the stuff she knew but the fact that her name is Seng as in Lee Seng mm. like, I, I thought that was pretty clear pretty quickly
0: okay. The dragon paths I think are a neat invention To have us being able to zip all over the place Without the drudgery of travel Although ironically Some of the key moments in the novel Actually involve travel such as when the Doctor's travelling to the mountain for the finale and he's in that plane, that's when Mr. Sin materialises on board, or a bit later where he commandeers a train to get the rest of the way to the mountain. So there's actually this nice balance of instant travel, getting us from place to place and we're not wasting time, and travel that takes some time, but there's actually some interesting stuff happening while we travel, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it was a really cool idea. It was both useful for the plot, but it was also useful in getting me as a reader to go what's going on here how does this work and, and again it felt like a Tom Baker type technobabble excuse where he's talking about the telluric currents and stuff like that I just thought yeah this this feels like a Tom Baker explanation for why this stuff's going on
0: yeah yeah and and how does this body from the museum in London where the guy was alive an hour ago you know how does that end up in China you know at the start I was completely at sea
1: yeah, no, but but I, I was as well. I'd also completely hooked him with this idea of, ooh, ooh, I wonder what the explanation is it there. There's going to be a cool sci-fi explanation, and I want to know what it is.
0: Yep, and I was surprised that Lucas Satan didn't have more of a role in the book. I already knew Lucas Satan because I've read the short story he's in in one of the Decalogues, where he has an adventure with Pat Troughton. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, so I, I was like, oh, Lucas Satan, it's the, it's the fallen angel, oh my God, yeah, yeah, great. But he's just, he does this like sort of cameo at the start. Then he's like, oh, I'm going to send a telegram. And that's literally all we we see of him. We don't even, I don't think we even see Wu read the telegram. Like I think Wu knows the information, which we infer came from the telegram. But there's sort of no more Lucas Satan in the whole thing. So I don't know whether that's because maybe the character was created by, I want to say it was Andy Lane who wrote that short story, but I'm not 100% sure maybe mckinty was just borrowing the character so didn't want to do much with it I, I was actually a bit disappointed that lucas satan wasn't more of a thing in the book
1: yeah i wasn't particularly disappointed about the character guy because I, I didn't know that background of the character but okay I, I i was surprised that having set up this london scene and it didn't feel like one of those ones where they go here's the prologue that happens over here end of prologue we're now moving somewhere else it felt like link to the story where they're going i'm going to talk to my counterparts over there Mm. and usually that would mean that at some point somebody arrives from england or they report back to england or or there's a bit more of a linkage whereas it really was just i'm going to let them know that they stole mr sin from london over to you
0: yeah (laughs) that's it (laughs) when we're putting together the synopsis one thing i noticed working on this file and just looking through it line by line and i've I've mentioned it a few times now dave is just how often people get captured in the novel i just want to mention that one more time i know being captured and being in a cell is a doctor who thing but it happens in this novel it feels like way more than it normally does in a doctor who story which is quite a lot
1: yes and there's also a lot of the well, we've been captured and taken back to the baddies' headquarters and now we've escaped, we can snoop around and get the important clue as to what's going on. I think they use that plot maybe just a little bit too much. As you say, it's a, it's a Doctor Who story. I accept it's going to be there a bit, but it, it did happen a lot.
0: Mm. Now, Dave, I think the story really ramps up towards the end. I wouldn't have necessarily called it slow early on, but in hindsight, not an awful lot happens. And then towards the end, it's like, this is the plan, here's a nuclear reactor, Mr. Sin's on a rampage, you know, etc, etc. It becomes much more enjoyable in the final third, let's say, when you look back on it, or at least when I look back on it. When you read it slowly, I guess, when you're reading it a chapter or two at a time, you might not notice this. But when you, when you sort of do a synopsis of it, you realize, oh gosh, this really does sort of speed up towards the end.
1: I think that's absolutely correct. I think that the Depth of the worlds and the settings and the characters do keep you going through that first part of the novel. I think wanting to find out what the explanations are keeps you going as well. So it's not as though I struggled through the first part of the novel, but McGinty is very good at building up the tension and building up the excitement as it gets towards the end. And, and and by the end, I was sort of like, oh, I can keep going a bit longer, can't I? Yeah, well, what does happen to the nuclear reactor? Okay, so yeah, I I, I totally agree with you.
0: Mm. Anything else before we wrap up?
1: Look, just one point for me. We have talked about the historical research that McGinty did, and it is very, very good. And I was also really interested by some of the other stuff he had in that bump section that you mentioned at the very start, where he does actually go on and say, I know that some of these things are not quite historically accurate, but... I need to make it work for the book. So one example he says is, look, I know that by night the nineteen thirties the tongs had kind of died out, and I know that they were about to become what we know as the triads, but neither of those kind of would be right for the 1930s. You're a Doctor Who fan, so you know what the Tong of the Black Scorpion is. So I'm gonna call them tongs. I know it's not correct. Please <laughs> please don't go to you know alt.com. <laughs> Doctor Who or whatever it was and, and, and tell Rick me Arts, I'm wrong. Doctor Who, Arts, Who and, you know, tell me <laughs> tell me I'm wrong. He does also have a glossary at the end, which I must admit I didn't need, but I can understand why he felt it was necessary. But that's just a reflection, I think, of 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 the research that he has done and that he's quite well known for.
0: Yeah, I, I thought that was really great. And look, I would have read the whole bump section to be honest, but I wanted to have repented doing the review. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Look, to summarise, I'll, I'll take lead here, Dave, and then you can let me know. I'm I'm going to say something that might seem controversial. I'm still not entirely sure, even after this conversation with you now. I'm not sure this fully works as a Doctor Who novel. I know the remit for the N.A.s, and I suppose the MAs was stories too big for the small screen. So, I guess it's making good on that promise, and good on David A. McKinty for that. But when you're reading this thing that's sort of part Indiana Jones and part James Bond, I mean, the whole racing around to stop a nuclear reactor in a big mountain base feels super Bond, there were times I couldn't quite visualise this as a Tom Baker adventure in the middle of season 16. Of course, there are parts where I could. The idea of the dragon paths is very Doctor Who- Mr. Sin is established in Doctor Who. I think McKinty gets the Doctor and Romano right, as we were talking earlier, particularly with regard to the Doctor. So there are parts where I'm like, okay, this is great. But there were other parts where I'm like, this maybe doesn't feel like Doctor Who. So I'm a bit torn on it.
1: Would you recommend it?
0: Well, look, it's... my, My next little note that I've scratched down is that it's very hard to score. I think it's a very solid novel, I was entertained by it, and you can feel the effort put into getting stuff right, aside from that bit you just read from Bumpf. But but does it have entirely the right vibe? Maybe not. I would give it a 7.5 out of 10, and I would direct it more to people who like gun Doctor Who and history-related Doctor Who. And I know that's not everyone. There are people out there who just want a big, fuzzy, happy runaround, and they're not going to like this at all.
1: That's very correct. If you just want a big, fun runaround with Jago and Lightfoot, this is not the book for you. No. (laughs) I'll say that right at the start. Look, I think that of the David A. McGinty books that I've read, and I've read quite a few of his, uh, I'll have it pretty solidly in the middle. Uh, It's not one of his greats. It's certainly better than a couple of his weaker ones. So... I think it's good there. I probably have the advantage over you, Rob, in that I've read a lot more of The Missing Adventures than you have, I believe.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I'm going to say that as an example of the range, it is up in the top third, maybe the top quarter, because a lot of other books struggle a lot more to reconcile that point I was making earlier about how do you feel like a season 16 story whilst also being a big and complicated novel, as we've come to expect in 1996. I think this balances that better than most, and so it's one of the better success stories of the range. Is it in my top five missing adventures? No, it's not. Would it break into my top ten? Yeah, I think it probably would. I think that although it's got its faults, certainly some of the plotting is, in my view, a little insubstantial as a history buff, I really enjoyed it. As somebody who likes characters, I really enjoyed it. It ramped up the adventure just when it needed to. Is it perfect? No. Was it a solid read that never felt like a chore? Yeah, very, very much so. I think if you're curious about The Missing Adventures, this would not be a bad place to start.
0: Excellent. I think we're both roughly in the same area.
1: Yeah, look I, I think we are i might go an eight rather than a seven but we're we're in the same
0: space yeah well seven and a half for me so i think we're very oh, close there you go There you go. yeah we're coming at it from maybe different angles because you have read more of the MAs. you're coming at it from that sort of angle i'm coming at it fresh this is a book i know nothing about i've never read it before and yet we've ended up within half a point of each other so i think this is a pretty good review for people dave
1: i, I hope so, as, <laughs> always, I so <laughs> as always let us know
0: brilliant All right, Dave, that rounds out The Shadow of Wang Chang. Hope you enjoyed it, listeners. And now we have, well, quite a few listener emails to read.
1: Yeah, always great to hear from so many listeners, but we'll crack right in. Rob, you've got the first.
0: I do. This is from Jamie Hailstone. Hello, Jamie. He says, loved the Jodie retrospective chaps. I always thought she would end up a bit like McCoy. I'm not talking about novelty jumpers, mind. I mean that there were a lot of question marks and low ratings the first time around when it was transmitted. Heck, you could even extend the analogy with budget cuts and scheduling problems, particularly in the UK. But over time, it will build up a small, loyal and vocal following that will be championing the show for decades to come. Of course, what do I know? All the best from Jamie Hailstone.
1: Thank you for that email, Jamie, and I think that's a really astute point, point. I think, I think I agree with you. Excellent. I have one here from longtime listener Dylan Rees. He says, Hello, gents. Great episode from you guys on revisiting the Jodie Whittaker era. I was not particularly enamoured with Series 11 when it was first broadcast, and as you mentioned, we put a lot of pressure on a new episode to be the best version of the show it can possibly be, even though it rarely is. However, I revisited the series just before Flux and grew to really love it. I think the series has a number of issues which aren't all its fault. I think that for fans who grew up on the classic Who, any Doctor coming after Capaldi was going to have their work cut out for them, and any showrunner coming after Moffat would have similar issues. Chibnall's Who was a softer iteration than perhaps people were expecting. Gone is the joke-per-minute, plot-twist-heavy stories of the Moffat era. Instead, the show is geared for a Sunday night slot. It's calmer and more laid-back in many ways. It's not the big reinvention fans wanted or hoped for. Instead, it's very much business as usual, the same mix of modern, futuristic and historical stories. While the casual viewer who tuned in for The New Doctor stuck around for an episode or two but then disappeared as the show churned out its usual monsters of the week and moved on, a similar thing happened when Capaldi took on the role. However, overnight ratings were still high back then, so it didn't quite look as bad of a drop-off. But let's not get into the whole ratings debate. Mm. Good point, Dylan. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder if there had been a story like Flux told over that first season if the audience drop-off would have been the same. Overall, I really love the whitaker chibnall era, even if it doesn't quite have the same impact as some of the previous seasons. I hope that the RTD2 era is a big, bold reinvention of the show. I think a show that's been on air for 18 years, sort of, needs to do something massive to stay fresh and relevant. So let's see where we end up. Keep up the good work. All the best, Dylan Rees.
0: And of course, to stay fresh and relevant, we've brought back... Murray Gold. <laughs> hey. Okay. I won't labor that. I have one here, Dave. Ooh, it's a long one, too, from Marcus Scarman. At least that's his online name. We know his real name, but he is Marcus Scarman online to you folks. And he says Hi, guys. Hope all is well with you and your loved ones. Loving the podcasts. Yes, all of them in every flavor. And they form part of my monthly routine, just like paying the credit card bill and reading DWM. ...and eating sometimes. Gotta pay for those box sets somehow. Thought I'd reach out in appreciation regarding your latest podcast... ...covering the Whittaker era of the show... ...and provide you with my take on a very divisive run of episodes. Fantastic podcast episode, I thought, made me ponder back... ...on a very diverse period in the show's history... ...although, I'll be honest, I haven't been inspired to go back and watch any episodes. I always tried to watch each episode in the week of transmission twice... The only exception to that rule was the Ghost Monument, which I managed to fall asleep to both times I tried to watch it. Beyond that, my claim to fame is watching all of Flux three times, or as I call it, Diet Thanos, and (laughs) The Power of the Doctor five times. So I do appreciate some of Chibnall's run and really enjoy them. I've always believed that every era of the show will have its fans straight off the bat, and for the remaining fan base, will eventually come to accept it for what it is after the dust has settled i also feel this is the first full run of a doctor where the now established more toxic side of the online community has really not shied away from being as brutal, as biased, as self-opinionated, and as nasty as they want to be. The Defenders are equally brutal, leaving me with the impression that both sides enjoy this kind of discourse and don't really worry about the impact this has on how our fandom is perceived, which they really should. We used to be as pleasant as the Good Omens community are. I'm personally a huge fan of the block button, whilst leaving a few of the more outrageous in the mix to avoid the echo chamber that ...denies a balanced gathering of viewpoints. It's very interesting. Mm. I'm a firm believer that there is always something worthwhile... ...in every episode of Doctor Who. Sometimes it can be a single performance... ...or set dressing can elevate it beyond the episode's flaws. Be them something as fundamental as a lack of quality... ...or cohesive story or a well-written script. Something that has plagued Chibbers throughout his time on the show. I would rather generally say, with a few notable exceptions... How he could have the brazen nerve to deliver something as well-rounded, crowd-pleasing and generally superb as the power of the Doctor at the end of his run is something that will baffle me for the rest of my days. Although disposable, I have enjoyed many creative aspects of his episodes, in particular the aesthetics of the show. The look and the soundscape has been compelling and pleasing to the eye and ear. The performances have been mixed for me. Not a huge issue with Whittaker's take on the Doctor. I really enjoyed her more awkward character beats around facing emotion and intimacy, echoes of the mighty Tom's portrayal and worked well as a darker contrast to her wacky and high energy performance generally. Sadly, the Companions have not really stuck out or been serviced very well at all across the seasons, which I feel is the biggest missed opportunity. How rare it is to have a Companion in the first episode of A New Doctor's Run and make it through to the final end with absolutely no memorable traits at all, or ones that are shrugged off or forgotten about as soon as they're issued. Yes, Yaz, I'm thinking about your police career, family issues and sudden desire for the Doctor, which I'm happy to see Chibnall didn't take to a full-blown snog. No need at all, and probably unwarranted, as Yaz buggers off the minute there's a sniff of a face change. Pretty shallow, Yaz. Not as shallow, though, as Ryan's character arc, but shallow all the same. Please do carry on with the hot takes. As for me, they tend to be the first structured piece I hear after an episode has aired, beyond the noise of Twitter, which might not even exist when the next set of episodes <laughs> begin to air. And I enjoy agreeing or disagreeing with your well-structured opinions that provoke me to ponder them throughout the working day. Enough from me. Keep up the good work, my friends. Marcus Scarman.
1: Thank you for that, Marcus. I think that look you'd be aware from listening to our episode, we probably agree with a lot of what you've said. Uh, can I just make the general point, Rob? Thank you to everybody who has commented by email or Twitter or other method about the Jodie Whittaker cold take episode that we did. Yes, I think we've had more downloads and more bits of feedback about that than we have from most of our episodes, yeah. and so it's it's been really gratifying that that experiment that we we did has really worked and, and you know really nice. I think as fans that uh, it has encouraged a few other people to go back to the Jodie Whittaker era and maybe enjoy it a bit more. I think that's a really, really cool thing.
0: Yeah, in one month, it has blown away the records of episodes that are a year or two or three old. I mean, the podcast has been going for eight years and they're really well-respected, well-received episodes. But in one month, it's blown away a lot of them. So there was super interest. I can't emphasise enough the interest in the Jodie Whittaker episode.
1: Yeah, so thank you to everyone who did listen and who did comment. Uh, one last email. This is from Blue Box Bill McCann third. He says, hello, Rob and Dave. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. I always look forward to your podcast. I don't know what sparked this idea, but thought you might get a kick out of it, some sending it along in the hopes it may materialise as the subject of a list-makers episode. What if you could repair writers, script editors, directors, producers and showrunners? Inquiring minds want to know. Time makes it impossible to implement most of these pairings, but with a TARDIS, well, you know the rest. Because there are no hard and fast rules here, for instance, which classic script editor would you pair with a modern showrunner? Is there a modern era writer who would fit right in with a classic series producer? Would Bob Holmes bring a sense of cohesion and completion to the Chibnall iteration of Doctor Who? What if it was produced by Verity Lambert? Where would a Douglas Adams edited season of New Who go with RTD at the helm? What would a J&T produced run of modern episodes look like? Can't you just see Andrew Cartmell script editing a season of Troughton Stories? This one I like a lot. Imagine Barry Letts teaming up with Stephen Moffat or Graham Harper directing New Era stories. Oh, wait, that already happened. But you get the idea. Until next time, Blue Box Bill McCann, the third bill that has gone straight into Turlow's Head of Rassilon, and I reckon you can expect to be popped out in the next few months.
0: Yeah, I'll just say briefly, I reckon a lot of fights would <laughs> erupt over <laughs> these pairings. <laughs> a lot of egos, I think. Yes. Yes, but we I have say that no dis- more. we'll have that
1: discussion when when we pull it out of the hat.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Rob, we've talked about Doctor Who. Anything of note you've been watching this last month?
0: Like everyone, I've watched The Mandalorian and Picard. They're finished now. But I have also watched The Diplomat, which is a really good eight-part Netflix series which I think is going to be an ongoing thing. It's not a limited series because if the cliffhangers is any indication, it, it has to go on. Basically, Dave, Kerry Russell is appointed to be a US, well, the US ambassador in the UK as part of a bigger plot. And her husband, played by Rufus Sewell, is also a legendary diplomat and ambassador himself. So there's a lot of friction given he's right there in the seat of power and has all the skills and everyone knows him, but he can't get too involved because she is the diplomat this time around. She is the ambassador. And all of this is set against an attack on a UK Navy vessel. And Kerry Russell has to liaise very closely with the UK to ensure the joint response of the UK and the US. And if this all sounds very heavy, it is... But it's also very funny without being a comedy. It's it's a really well-written thing. And I've never watched The West Wing, Dave, but I believe you might have a reason for why this could be like The West Wing.
1: Yeah, you've been urging me to watch this, and I haven't had a chance yet, but I will. Uh, but I did discover the other day that it is written by the author of The Supremes, which is my favourite episode of The West Wing. So it's definitely got a bit of an influence there.
0: Right. Well, there you go. Yeah, look, I, I highly recommend it. If you like the more talky side of diplomacy rather than diplomacy at the barrel of a gun like a James Bond film.
1: Yes, no, fair enough. I will check that out. Like you, I've been watching Picard and The Mandalorian Season 3. We do plan to have some chats about those over the next couple of weeks, so mm-hmm. keep an eye out for that. Um, I did discover Doogie Howser had dropped on Disney+, Plus, and I did dip into a few of those. I It was funny going from the really early episodes that I have no memory of to the much later ones that I do kind of remember where, you know, Neil Patrick Harris is now very clearly an adult and it's really just a normal sitcom and the writers also realise that Vinny's by far the more interesting character. Um, I'll be re-watching The World at War, which has been really, really good. I haven't watched it since the ABC repeated it in 1995 and I've been really impressed by it so far. My season 9 box set did arrive as we talked about earlier in the show so i am up to episode two of the sea devils and i'll talk more about that next month Mm -hmm. Uh, but next month we are going to be watching a lot of doctor who because we are due for another deep dive into a season or series of doctor who which means we are going to have a listener poll which means two nominations from each of us rob what are your nominations for next month's season deep dive
0: What if we do them one at a time and we tic-tac?
1: Okay, what's your first?
0: My first is Season 8.
1: Ooh, my first is Season... 26.
0: Ooh, you've wanted to get that one up for a while, I think.
1: Yeah, I'll have another track.
0: My second pick, Season 19, (laughs) with Davo. My
1: second is therefore going to be Series 7A.
0: Oh, interesting first half of uh, smithy's um final yes, season yeah. okay wow well. so,
1: 8 19 26 7a
0: when you say it's going to be does that mean you'd pick season 19 as well
1: uh no it means that i picked another pertwee and so i uh oh rather than having two pertwees i thought i'd throw something else out all
0: right then you'll see that poll up on twitter at some stage after this episode goes out vote vote early vote often is that what they say it is, it is, it is yes, <laughs> I'm not sure you that. can do that without multiple Twitter accounts though folks So don't try it <laughs> um, Anyway, that's been the Doctor Who show for the month of April Looking at the shadow of Wang Chang Hope you've enjoyed it folks Until next time, I've been Rob And I've been Dave And we'll see you then on the Doctor Who show Goodbye Bye bye You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show With Rob and Dave Find us online by searching for The Who
1: Show.
0: We also love it when you ride in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the DWShow.net.